Welcome to Harmony Talk, a podcast about dreamers and doers from all walks of life, art, science, social and environmental impact, entrepreneurship, invention. Harmony Talk is brought to you by A.M. Skyer, a third generation family insurance business founded in 1920. I'm your host, Lisa Champeau. And today my guest is Blake Friedman, a young operatic tenor whose voice has been described as one of plummy fullness and dusky hue by the New York Times and praised for its buttery top by the New York Classical Review. Blake is equally at home, though, on the concert and musical stages as he is in the opera hall. But he has performed with many opera companies around the country, including the Dallas Opera, Loft Opera in New York City, the Anchorage Opera, and the Chautauqua Symphony, just to name a few. And coming up in just a few weeks, Blake will enchant us with opera and Broadway songs in a musical review called Songs of New York in Milford, Pennsylvania, a production of our sister organization, Harmony in the Woods. Welcome, Blake. Hi, how are you? Great to be here. Thanks so much for being with us. Blake, I just described your voice a little bit, or rather there were media descriptions of your voice. How would you describe it? So that's a really great question, Lisa. I would describe my voice as an American tenor. There are all sorts of different kinds of operatic tenor. We call them fachs. And fachs are a specific kind of classification for operatic singing that basically denotes the kind of roles that you would play. So in the classical sense, I would be considered a lyric leggero singer, which means that I sing basically the ingenue love interest roles in opera. In musicals, I'd be more of a character tenor. I would be able to sing like in Beauty and the Beast. I would be the candlestick or the wardrobe chest. In other shows, I would be the sidekick. So I like to say that I'm more versatile than just a Fach classification. So I like to go by American tenor. Well, American tenor, you have certainly played a lot of roles. You've played Iago in Otello, which was kind of a, that's the dark you <laughs> role that was mentioned earlier. Yes. <laughs> that's my evil side. Yes, the malevolent, <laughs> malevolent one. But you have played Count Almaviva quite a bit in The Barber of Seville, and that's a wonderful role where you get to play a lot of other roles. He has a lot of disguises in The Barber of Seville, trying to uh, win Rosina from the, uh, I don't know if you'd call him evil, but certainly her elderly guardians. Yes. Nefarious, I think, is a good word for him. Nefarious. Is that a role that you really enjoyed playing? Can you tell me a little bit about the Barber of Seville? So Barber of Seville is actually my favorite role to sing. Part of the reason that it's my favorite role to sing is because of what you just mentioned. He gets to be four different characters in one show, which is kind of exhausting, not going to lie, but it's so cool to be able to assume all of these different personas during the course of the show. And on top of that, Rossini's music is just transcendent. I mean, there really is no better bel canto composer than Rossini himself. Well, what goes through your mind when you play all those different characters? For me, the most important thing is to remember the main goal of Count Amaviva, which is to get Rosina to fall in love with him. And so everything that he does is with that goal in mind. We're going to play a little clip from your performance with the Anchorage Opera in The Barber of Seville.
You know, Placido Domingo once said that his strength was his enthusiasm, not so much his music, but his enthusiasm that he applied to his music. Would you agree that that's something that you bring to your music as well? Absolutely. It's funny you bring up Plácido. He's one of my biggest idols. I grew up listening to all his recordings. I've seen him perform live, and it was just like a dream come true to be able to do that. It's funny that you say that enthusiasm is what he says is most important because to me, what he brings to the table more than anybody else is his musicianship. So for me, I would say that enthusiasm is important, but I would also say that it's important to remember that when you show up to an opera house, you're there to serve the composer. You're there to serve the music. So to me, what's most important is to serve as the conduit for the art form to speak through you. Well, you talk about musicianship. How does one become an opera singer? Tell me about your childhood a bit. You're from Chicago? I am. So I grew up in Chicago, and I'm the son of a musician, and music actually runs in my family. My great-great-uncle, actually, his stage name was Simon Bukharov. He was an orchestrator and arranger at Warner Brothers, and he was an Academy Award-winning orchestrator. He did Juarez, The Seahawk, three or four Humphrey Bogart films, and he wrote six operas. And because he was of Jewish descent, which, as am I, he had an opera that was slated to be performed in Leipzig in 1939. And I'm sure that you can imagine in 1939 a Jewish composer. (laughs) Uh, Not laughable. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, not laughable, but, you know. (laughs) So his musical line came down through my father's side His sons were all musical. It just was something that I grew up with. I was always around it. So when I was five years old, I was in my kindergarten classroom and our general music teacher came in and she was playing songs on the auto harp with us and we were singing on the rug and having fun. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I started to harmonize with the class just because I thought it was fun. And... The teacher, her name was Vera Wang, and she was a dear woman, and really I credit her with me being a singer and a musician today. She encouraged you. Not only did she encourage me, she set me on the path to be where I am today. She heard me harmonize, and she immediately called my mother that afternoon, and she said, what are you doing with this child? And my mom is not a musician. She's a visual artist. And so she said, well, what happened? Did he beat someone up or something? What did he do? Right, exactly. That would be my reaction. What do you mean? What are you doing with this child? (laughs) And so Mrs. Wang said to her, well, he went up a third. And my mother said, oh, well, what does that mean? (laughs) So she explained that I started harmonizing with the class. And she said, you know, I get a student like this once every two decades. I don't see a child with a musical propensity like this very often. You need to get him into piano lessons. You need to get him into the Chicago Children's Chorus. You need to make sure that he is nurtured in this path. And my father... He is the most supportive person of my career other than my mother. Like, I have the two greatest fans in the world in my parents. 
your mother took those marching orders to heart. <laughs> they did. <laughs> but my father actually originally said, no, no, no. He is not going to be a musician. He's not going to starve. He's going to be a CPA and he's going to make money and live a normal life. And, you know, the fates decided that that was not what was going to happen. And I decided that that was not what was going to happen. So when I was six years old, I started taking piano lessons. I hated them. I was not a pianist and I'm still not a pianist. So I'm eternally grateful for the upcoming show to have Jerry Steichen with me at the piano. He is an amazing resource. He's an amazing colleague. He's an incredible collaborator. And I'm just so lucky to have him. But anyway, my father didn't really want to push it. He wanted to have me kind of just explore it. And if it was something that interested me, he was happy to have me do it. And if it was something that did not interest me, he was not going to force it on me. So I started piano lessons. I took them for about a year. It was fine. It was not my favorite thing in the world. Then I ended up in the Chicago Children's Chorus for a semester. And I liked it, but there was an engagement that they do every year called Caroling to the Animals. And you go and being from Chicago, it's a very cold place in the middle of the winter. Right. And so singing carols to the animals out in the negative 30 degree <laughs> weather was not really something I was interested in doing. So that kind of put an end to my choral singing as a child. And then when I was 10 years old, I was very, very fortunate to meet my first voice teacher. Her name was Gisela Goetzing, and she was a German diva who sang all throughout Europe in her life, and she was the choir director at the school that I went to from nursery school through the end of high school, the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools. Let me interrupt for just a minute. So despite the fact that you didn't like piano, you didn't like singing to the animals, you still like singing. Oh, I am a ham. There is nothing I love more than standing on a stage. When I was three years old, I would get up on the hearth of the fireplace and it was my stage and I would perform to all my teddy bears and I had a little karaoke microphone that I would sing into and I was Whitney Houston when I was three years old. That was who I dreamed I was going to be. Didn't quite work out, but... <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> You're doing fine just uh, the way you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I am not a black female gospel singer, but... <laughs> <laughs> but we came close. We got adjacent, you know. And so being on the stage was always what really turned me on and lit the spark. And so I always chased after that. When I started taking lessons with Gisela, she steered me in the direction of classical music. I had always wanted to be a pop belter. Well, I was just about to ask that question because obviously Whitney Houston is not Placido Domingo. <laughs> no, but she did sing with Pavarotti. So oh, did she? Okay. <laughs> she did. <laughs> so that was another way that I was introduced into the classical music world. Aside from the fact that, you know, driving to school every morning, I was listening to Beethoven symphonies and listening to Mozart and then on the flip side, listening to the Beatles and Whitney Houston and Madonna. And so there was this very interesting intersection of styles that have crossed in front of me that I think really shaped the type of performer that I am today. Because when it all boils down to it, music and performance is meant to uplift the souls of everybody that you are around. And that's what those performers did for me. And that's what I hope to do for the audience whenever I'm on stage. Well, what actually drove you to choose opera over pop? 
So when I started taking lessons with Gisela at 10 years old, she immediately said to me and to my father, he is a gifted boy. He needs to stop singing pop music. He needs to stop singing musical theater. He needs to learn how to sing in a classical coordination so that he will sustain his voice for the rest of his life. And once she introduced me to the vocal writing of Mozart and of Beethoven and of all the great classical composers, Bellini, Rossini, Donizetti, I fell in love. And it was really interesting and fascinating to me. And especially Rossini, because I always idolized Mariah Carey as well as a singer. And she does all those runs and riffs and stuff like that. And Rossini is very similar. It's like singing like Mariah Carey. You're doing all of this filigree and all of these roulades all over the music. And it just is so much fun. And to figure out... Wait a minute now. All I want for Christmas and (laughs) the Barber of Seville. Okay. They're one and the same. You know, why not, right? Of course. You did mention Donizetti, though. And I know we have a clip of you singing from Anna Boleyn. And I'd like to to just play that for just a moment. schooled when you were young, but you continued on. You got a master's degree. You got a professional diploma from the Manhattan School of Music. How important was that continuing education in your career? So important. In fact, to this day, I take practically every week a lesson or a coaching. I'm very blessed to have a team of amazing musicians around me that make sure that, you know, I'm using my voice in the most healthy way possible, that make sure that I am focusing on the right details of the music. It's very interesting when you look at a page of music in an opera score, there's so much information 
that is set out on just one page. You see tempo markings that tell you how fast or how slow to go. You see dynamic markings that tell you how loud or how soft to sing. You see emotional markings that tell you what the pathos of what you're talking about is supposed to portray. And aside from that, there's all of these little tiny details in the notes themselves that really portray the emotion of what the character is trying to get across. That can be a little daunting when you're first looking at a piece. Because you kind of have to transcend them to sing on stage in front of people. Well, you have to absorb them and you have to be able to act as a conduit for those details and for the minutia of the score, because that is what makes the magic on stage. Was it difficult to sing this last clip that we heard? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought so. (laughs) (laughs) It took me normally... I'm a very, very fast learner. In fact, one of the most recent engagements that I had, I was called in two weeks prior to do a 300-page opera score that had only been produced one other time in 2015. So there was no source material for me. It was all looking at a page and learning the music. And I managed to learn, memorize, stage, and perform this show in two weeks which is, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but that's... It's pretty amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's not common amongst my singer brethren. Usually a role takes six to nine months to prepare. Now, what show was that? So this show was with Chicago Opera Theater. It was called Becoming Santa Claus. And I was called in to cover the show, which is to wait in the wings and hope to God that no one becomes ill. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, it was... December, and I don't want to bring up, you know, negative things, but the newest variant was running around, and it was a very hairy time. And so the performing arts have really had to adapt and pivot and find shows that are with smaller casts and find shows that are accessible and are not particularly long and that are still interesting and still get across the different emotional things that people are looking to partake in. And this is also live, not virtual? This was live, and I showed up to the rehearsal room, and I was very, very blessed to have a fantastic team around me that did everything they could to help me get everything together (laughs) at the last second. But it was an incredible experience, and I got to meet the composer, which is something that I'm very, very passionate about. That's another reason I call myself an American tenor. I do a lot of modern compositions and a lot of new American music because there are so many stories that have yet to be told and that have yet to be lifted up into the forefront. And I'm so proud to be a member of the original cast of a number of different shows that have been produced in the past five years. Serving as the resident tenor for American Opera Projects, I had a new piece written for me once a month, and we workshopped the piece, and I was able to give feedback and discuss what worked vocally for me and what didn't work vocally for me, and to have the ability to see opera not as the museum piece that we always think of it as, but to see it as this living, breathing, emotional, energetic art form is just the coolest thing in the world to me. That is wonderful. Now, this is a very competitive field. Yes. (laughs) Yes, very much so. (laughs) So perhaps that's your niche, 
this American. It is. American operatic repertoire and bel canto are my two niches. I've always been a musical theater guy, too, though. So and I have had the opportunity to perform in that arena as well. Versatility is the name of the game to me. You have to be able to diversify everything you do with your voice to be able to maintain a career nowadays in what we call the golden era of classical music. Singers would be very, very specific in their niche. They would only sing three to five roles. And that was what they did. And nowadays, especially because of the modern compositions, that's not really the same anymore. You get to put on new characters. You get to try out different styles of music. And it's important to be able to partake in all of those different styles because they're all being performed all over the country and the world. And the more that you can mold yourself into the sonic world of whatever it is that you're performing, the more opportunity that you'll have to be on stage. And ultimately, for a tenor like me, that's the goal. Well, let's talk for a second about your upcoming show in Milford on May 7th, Songs of New York. Tell me about it. What kinds of songs are in the show? So the songs that I have chosen, I've chosen about nine, and they're a mixture of classical bel canto. There's a, an excerpt from La Boheme, because who doesn't love La Boheme? I mean, really, it's one of the greatest pieces of music ever written. And there is a smattering of musical theater, and it tells the story, it's basically my story, of a young guy who wants to live in New York City, and wants to pursue his dreams of being a singer. So I have written a script and have a whole show that discusses what it's like to go through the audition process and what it was like to fly into New York City for the first time. I grew up in Chicago. It's not a small town. But it's not New York City. It's the sleepy version of New York City. That's how I like to think of it. Well, I went to Northwestern, so I do understand where you're coming from. Awesome. <laughs> I grew up very close to Northwestern, actually, about a 30-minute drive. My eyelashes froze during the winter. I'm not surprised. <laughs> not surprised at all. I still have windburn on my cheeks from all of the <laughs> negative degree wind chills during the winter. But New York has this cultural hub that is like nowhere else in the world. And what I'm trying to accomplish in this show is to give an example of what that cultural hub is and what it symbolizes to an artist like me. And I really hope that you'll all show up on May 7th at 7 p.m. to hear the story of my journey into New York City. Well, we do have a clip from that show. It's a Rodgers and Hart song, Manhattan or I'll Take Manhattan. And let's listen to it for a second. And Staten Island too It's lovely going through the zoo It's very fancy on old Delancey Street, you know The subway charms us so When balmy breezes blow to and fro And tell me what street compares to Mott Street in July Gently gliding by the great 
a wondrous toy just made for a girl and boy will turn Manhattan into an isle of joy. I happened to see this clip on your Facebook page, so I saw you actually performing it. And I must say the enthusiasm in your face was, I mean, you were ebullient. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you were. You were. Your strength was your enthusiasm. I mean, it was just it was just a wonderful thing to see. So what are your long-term goals? To be a successful performer that brings joy to the world. It sounds like you're doing it already. You certainly brought me joy in that piece. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You know, we live in really strange times. And if there is anything that I can do to make those times a little bit more enjoyable, that is what I want to do. I was put on this earth to be a person that brings happiness and levity and joy. And if I'm not accomplishing that, I'm not accomplishing my purpose. Well, that's great. That's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for being with us, Blake. And I wish you the best of luck in your upcoming performances and in your career. I know that you'll be at Carnegie Hall again. You've been there before in November. And of course, what does it take to get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. The Q train to 57th Street. (laughs) That also. (laughs) And a negative COVID test. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good luck to you, Blake. And thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Harmony Talk is brought to you by A.M. Skyer, a third-generation family insurance business founded in 1920. Thanks for being with us. Talk to you next time. 